Welcome to another episode of Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. I'm JC, your usual host. Uh, thanks again for uh, tuning in to Appalachian Shine. We greatly appreciate every listener that we have here on this show. As a matter of fact, when we first started Appalachian Shine, um, we, we, were, we got together with a board meeting and we're just discussing. We'd probably give it a few episodes, see how it went, see how it took. And, uh, and then make a decision then. You know, we're well over 40 episodes into this program, and I certainly appreciate uh, every single one of you for listening, uh, and that is a, a big thank you on, on behalf of our board as well, and, uh, and all the guests that we've managed to have over the last year on this show. And we've uh, been fortunate to have quite a few. Um, however, we want to thank you, the listener, and those of you that support the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement in particular, because uh, you are the biggest piece of the puzzle. You're the most important person uh, here at the Foundation. Uh, you know, we, uh, we do what we can. We volunteer our time. But without supporters like you and listeners like yourself, um, it would be just kind of uh, just talking to a wall. So we thank every one of you for uh, listening and downloading the, uh, the podcast uh, those that you listen online and also on iTunes and Spotify that listen there on your smartphone, uh, certainly do uh, thank you. Hey, today I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a couple of books that I've read over the last couple of years, actually, that made a very big difference to me and, and actually changed a little bit of the way I view our region right here in Appalachia. <clears throat> Two very important books, actually. One was called What You Don't Understand or What You're Not Getting About Appalachia or What You Don't Understand About Appalachia. Uh, it was by Elizabeth Catt. And that, I think her last name is spelled C-A-T-T-E. It was a really interesting book. Now, I probably fumbled the title a little bit because I don't have it in front of me. Um, another book I think that, that uh, bears mentioning, and I've mentioned this on the program just briefly before, but it's a book that I picked up last year, uh, last fall actually, called The United States of Appalachia, How Southern Mountaineers uh, Brought Independence, Culture, and Enlightenment to America by an author by the name of Jeff Biggers. Now, that's been a very, very good book, and I kind of got immersed in that. It, it, was, it took me a while to get into the book, not any fault of the book. I just had a lot going on in life at the time and just really didn't have time to catch up on the reading I wanted to do. But it was a really, really great book. And I wanted to actually read an excerpt of it. And that's what I wanted to do just for today's quick episode, is, uh, is a read a little bit of an excerpt of this book by Jeff Biggers. You can find it on Amazon. You can probably find it on barnesandnoble.com. Or those of you in the area, if you have a Books a Million, pop in there. Uh, you probably would find it on the shelves there. Uh, I think it's a very influential book. And uh, it's very much worth reading. Um, so let me go ahead and just jump into this. I think this book came out in 2005 or 2008. I'm not quite sure. Don't have it set in front of me at the moment. But I did have a print here of um, a little bit of an excerpt I wanted to read to you. Uh, Appalachia needs no defense. It needs more defenders. Beyond its mythology as a quaint backwater in the American imagination, Appalachia also needs to be embraced for its historic role as a vanguard region in the United States. Vanguard Appalachia? The very word vanguard conjures up a plethora of images, though none in Appalachia. It's Thomas Jefferson at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. It's George Washington plotting his campaign at Yorktown. William Lord Garrison, the great New England abolitionist, 
was in the vanguard of the anti-slavery movement. His transcendentalist Boston neighbors stood in the forefront of 19th century American literature. The New York Times, in an era of yellow journalism, typified the vanguard press. The Village Vanguard Jazz Club in New York City provided the nation's music innovators with its hallowed stage. Martin Luther King Jr., at the front of the Civil Rights Movement, would be its modern political symbol. Expatriate Gertrude Stein might be its literary icon. These are all reasonable examples, of course. And yet, would you believe me if I said an Appalachia, if an Appalachian preceded, led, or influenced every one of these historic events or gatherings? That years before Jefferson completed the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, a backwoods settlement had already stunned the British crown with its independence as a dangerous example for the people of America. That an alliance of southern Appalachian insurgents orchestrated their own attacks on British troops and turned the tide of the American Revolution. That a humble band of mountain preachers and writers published the first abolitionist newspaper in the nation and trained the radical garrison that a Cherokee mountaineer invented the first syllabary in modern times, that a Back Hills young woman astounded the Boston literary circles in 1861 with the first American short story of working-class realism to be published in the Atlantic Monthly. That young publisher from Chattanooga actually took over the New York Times and set its course for world acclaim, that the high priestess of soul put a spell on an audience at the Village Vanguard in 1959 with her blend of folk, jazz, gospel, country, and Bach motif riffs she had learned in her southern Appalachian hamlet. That a self-proclaimed radical hillbilly galvanized the shock troops of the civil rights movement and returned an African spiritual and labor song as its anthem. That the first American woman ever awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature was recognized for her family memoirs of West Virginia as much as for her literary contributions to the Far East. Few regions in the United States can found and fascinate Americans like Appalachia. No other region has been so misrepresented by the mass media. For paradox, four paradoxical images have enjoyed incredible staying power. Pristine Appalachia, the unspoiled mountains and hills along the Appalachia Trail, notwithstanding centuries of warfare, the wholesale destruction of the virgin forest by the timber industry, and the continual vein of strip mining. Then there's backwater Appalachia, home of the strange land and peculiar people. In thousands of stories, novels, radio, and TV programs and films, even though the region has produced some of the most important writers, artists, scientific, uh, scientists, and politicians in the country. Then there's Anglo-Saxon Appalachia, once defined by Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, as a mountain region of white natives, despite its role as a crossroads of indigenous cultures and vast immigrant and African-American migrations for centuries. And then there's a pitiful Appalachia, a poster region of welfare and privation, the haggard faces greeting Charles Kuralt on CBS News on Christmas of 1964. Regardless of the tremendous wealth generated by the mountain range's mineral resources, timber and labor force in the mines, mills and factories, and today's tourist industry. Untouched wilderness, poor white backwater hillbillies. In his best-selling analysis of the Buffalo Creek mining dam disaster in the 1970s, everything in its path 
eminent Yale sociologist Kai Erickson captured these stereotypes in an enduring judgment on Appalachian Mountain culture. It helps breed a social order without philosophy or art, or even the rudest form of letters. It brings out whatever capacity for superstition and credulity a people come endowed with, and it encourages an almost reckless individualism. For most readers, the blood-curdling acts of Appalachian man's inhumanity to civilized man in the mountains, replete with inbred banjo pickers, violent feuds, moonshine, sexual deviltry, and miasmic gorges, have been put to rest. We are savvy enough to refrain from uttering hillbilly in mixed company. Little Abner, Barney Google, and Snuffy Smith, Hee Haw, and the Andy Griffith Show are out. Best-selling authors Barbara Kingslover, King Solver, excuse me, Charles Fraser, Homer Hickam, and Robert Morgan are in. Sure, bizarre and offensive portrayals of Appalachians occasionally take place. During the research and writing of this book, CBS talent scouts combed the southern mountains for corncob pipe rubes to participate in a proposed TV reality show. A reality show based on the Beverly Hillbillies. Abercrombie and Fitch dressed their, man, uh, their mannequins with a West Virginia, it's all relative t-shirt, and a horror film, Wrong Turn, featured a promo about six young people who find themselves being hunted by inbred cannibals in the woods of West Virginia. But we've come a long way from the time of literary critic H.L. Mencken, who openly discussed reducing, reducing the birth rate of inferior orders, for example, the hillbillies of Appalachia, Still, the region's fame, or infamy, has forced writers and critics to dwell on what has been done to Appalachia, rather than what Appalachia has contributed to the world. For every deliverance and its sodomites, we are quick to recall the Waltons in our collective memory, or more recently the best-selling novel and Oscar-nominated Cold Mountain film, or in more tragic terms, every private Lindy England, the defamed cigarette-lipped scapegoat of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal in Iraq, who hails from Fort Ashby, West Virginia. There's a heroic private Jessica Lynch from Palestine, West Virginia, molded into the image of Sergeant Alvin York, the Tennessee mountaineer and America's most famous soldier. Appalachia, as author Willie Stegner once remarked about the American Southwest, has been more a process than a place. Some critics would even say it's become an invention of its own. Sociologist Alan Bateau once voiced a common feeling that Appalachia is a creature of the urban imagination. Since the first Spanish conquistador was informed of its existence in 1528 by distant tribes of Florida, Appalachia has certainly bewildered its explorers and inhabitants with its boundaries, its mystical forests, and its meaning. But Appalachia does exist both as a range and as a region. Beyond any singular culture, however, any real Appalachia, the region has also endowed the nation with an enduring and conflicting treasury of innovations and innovators. That treasury, though, is rarely viewed beyond the surface of a few honorable exemplars. High lonesome singers and banjo players, black-faced coal miners, wizened front porch storytellers, trotted out ever so often to represent an entire region. Appalachian author Jim Wayne Miller once recounted an old tale about flatboaters who traversed the Tennessee River at night. 
passing house after house with a great fire burning, people dancing always to the same fiddle tune. The boatmen didn't realize they were caught in a boiling pot, going in circles around the same house and its unchanging scene, unaware of the region's greater wonders hidden in the forest like ginseng. This is Appalachia's best-kept secret. Far from being a strange land with peculiar people, the mountains and hills have been a strange, has been a stage for some of the most quintessential and daring American experiences of innovation, rebellion, and social change. This book in his attempt to get off the flatbed and enter another part of Appalachia, or in fact, should we say Southern Appalachia, that mountains, the mountain spine and its valley tributaries that trundle along the eastern and southeastern states from northern, Al northern Alabama to southwestern Pennsylvania. The Appalachian Regional Commission actually defines, uh, defines Appalachia from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It's not a definitive history of the region. Instead, it's a portrait of a hidden Appalachia on the cutting edge, full of revolutionaries and pioneering stalwarts, abolitionists, laborers, journalists, writers, activists, and artists overlooked among the lineup of conventional Appalachian suspects. Putting aside the banjos and potlickers, casting aside both the wearisome slurs and sentimental postcards, and taking a break from recounting the evil deeds done into mountaineers, this book seeks to show how remarkably, how, rem how a remarkable procession of Appalachian-born innovators have gone from these hills, as Thomas Wolfe wrote, to find and shape the great America of our discovery. Yes, that was copyrighted in 2005 by author Jeff Biggers, and this I'm reading this from NPR.org, and it was reprinted uh, by permission of Shoemaker and Horn on that. So I wanted to actually just you know, suggest this book if you really want to um, dive into a lot of the uh, the history of this region that I find fascinating. As I was reading this book, there's so much more I learned about the region that I didn't know before. And I'll have to admit, um, one of the reasons I wanted to get together with our initial board of directors and form this foundation was because, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a mark. I'm a bit of a sap. I'm a bit of a sucker because I want to look at not all the problems that we have in Appalachia, which definitely need solutions, but I wanted to shine a light on the best of what Appalachia is and why this place is such a rich culture of family, friends, history, art, and innovation. I look at the best of it. I'm a romantic in a way. I guess I should say that. And that was that vision that wanted me to kind of set this um, set this foundation up with some colleagues and push that agenda and not always put the you know the sad picture of you know poverty stricken Appalachia, poor Appalachia, uncultured Appalachia. That is not who we are. Yeah, we have those issues in some places, but you know these problems are solvable. And one of the things that I like about that the concept of being innovative and pioneers is, you know, when I went to uh, Frankfurt last fall and I visited the, the gravesite of Daniel Boone and his wife, I thought there's America's greatest pioneer who set foot right here in central Appalachia um, prior to the Revolutionary War, had oversaw forts in the area in Lord Dunmore's war uh, to protect uh, citizens from, from raids. And then went on um, to just go go as far west as he could, 
And what an amazing story Daniel Boone is as far as an American pioneer and an American spirit. And that, that spirit is right here in Appalachia. And that is what made me so proud and honored to set up the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement and try to do what we do, even though it's like small, small ball and piecemeal compared to a lot of major foundations that have big financial backing. You know, we appreciate the donations we get. We'd, we'd certainly love to, to, to get more so we can actually do some things as far as promoting history and culture and, and uh, the things that we're so rich with here in central Appalachia. So we hope you'll keep that in mind. And go check out those books um, and uh, let me know what you think. Do you have any other books that you would recommend other folks here in Appalachia to read that, that you found interesting or helpful? Um, let us know. We'll share them on our Facebook page. We'll share them on a future podcast. If you want to share those books with me uh, or any other kind of suggestions like that or other podcasts that are um, – and now there are quite a few I listen to that are that are about Appalachia. But if you have anything like that you want to share with us, uh, drop me an email, jc at supportappalachia.org, and let me know. And I will uh, certainly bring it up on a future show and um, make sure to mention it on our Facebook page. So thanks again um, for listening to the podcast. We certainly appreciate it. And this big puzzle of what we're trying to do here in Appalachia, you, the listener, are the biggest piece so I hope you'll share this podcast and our website with others. Uh, we're at supportappalachia.org, facebook.com forward slash supportappalachia. And uh, we do have a, a, fund, a fundraiser we're doing on GoFundMe that's linked on our foundation's Facebook page. So if you want to help us out with that, um, you can click on that link. It gives you a description of what we're trying to do with the money. Again, none of us get paid. We're all volunteers. Uh, we just want to make sure that what we have uh, money for – we actually can do a good job and not kind of halfway do it. So um, if you, I know if you're listening to this podcast, you share the same passions and the same goals um, and, and the desire that and the knowledge that we don't need more solutions for Appalachia. We need more solutions from Appalachia. And there, there's a big difference between the two. So thanks again, everybody. Let me know what you think of the book um, and uh, make sure to follow us online and we will see you on down the road. <laughs>